Hello and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Laura Barton. And I'm Michelle Jones. And today we are covering the book of Revelation, chapter 12 through 22. The title in our Come Follow Me manual is He That Overcometh Shall Inherit All Things. And this is book of Revelation, part two. Last time we were in chapter 11, the seventh trumpet sounded, it blew, heaven descended, and the kingdom of our world became the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Which I'm real excited for. I'm just going to put that out there. I wanted to say at the beginning of the podcast, when I went through the very first thing I did when I started to tackle these chapters, because it's a lot of content that we're looking at for our Come Follow Me lesson this week, was I went through and I read the chapter headings of each one just in sequence. Like I just read chapter heading of 12, then 13, and so on. And I really felt like I got a lot out of just reading that. So that's a really great place to start maybe for any of us that need a more approachable way to begin delving into the content of Revelation. I was thinking for my kids even that would be a great thing. And that's a great suggestion. And I have not yet read them. And now I want to go back and read them. But um, my reading didn't have any chapter headings. And if it did, we would know that this cliffhanger... It's actually, we just got the ending. That is the mm-hmm. ending. But since we'd never read it before, <laughs> I went on to read chapter 12 and I realized that this is a vision. So chapter 12 is actually just a long interlude that goes on for a couple cha- chapters. And the angel is explaining what this means, the kingdom of our God. And, and because it's a vision, we get the interlude, we get examples, and we get more examples. And we will come back to that ending More like chapter 19 or so. So, in chapter 12, we have this epic interlude that portrays the original battle between good and evil, which Joseph Smith has told us that the first character we're introduced to is the Church of God. And so this chapter 12 is the epic battle between the Church of God and the kingdom of Satan. So the first woman we're introduced to is um, the Church of God. She's clothed in chapter 12, verse one. She's a woman wearing the sun with the moon beneath her feet and upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. So this woman is clothed in the sun, clothed and endowed with the light of the sun. So clothed in light, stars on her head, moon at her feet. And, and I really do like that visual of the church of God portraying light. And that with that strength of the church of God, you will be able to see clearly as you have this experience that is about to unfold. And I do think it's interesting that as they're betraying this woman as representing the church of God, that this isn't just that, that, that she is the sun or that the light emanates from her, that she through the Savior, through this light that is reflected of God's light, that that is where she gets this um, great light and glory that is surrounding her. And I think that's a really beautiful imagery as well. Right. And so this woman clothed in the sun, endowed with that light, is later on referred to as the bride of Christ. And so the church as the bride of Christ is something we'll get back to at the end. But this woman is... um, 
she brings forth forth a child, which we know will be Zion eventually. But the red dragon is another character, and this red dragon, who is Satan, is ready to devour that child. The red dragon has many crowns, and he claims the earth as his dominion. But we see that those that are staying tethered to the Savior will always have power over Satan. Those that have eyes to see and ears to hear will have that light, but we'll see that others will be deceived by the false sense of security that Satan tries to bring to the people and his kingdom on earth. And if we're going to break down this chapter 12 a little bit, I feel like there's like a part one, and then we do have this little like sideways... um, Description that feels sideways at first, except then we come back to finish in the third part. So I really think chapter 12 is broken into three parts. The first part, we have the symbolism of the church, and we have the dragon, and the and the dragon makes it impossible for the church to prosper. So we're speaking here most likely of the primitive church in the meridian of time, and, you know, the red dragon brings in the apostasy. So, and then we have this interlude with the war in heaven, which there's so much good stuff. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more. And then after we talk about the war in heaven, which really the war that's going on here on earth just is a reflection of that war in heaven. Continuation of exactly. it. Exactly. And then the last part of chapter 12, um, we see this woman again and the dragon, but we're talking about the time after the apostasy, the early restored church, and how the woman comes back from the wilderness into that time. So I think that gives us kind of an understanding of what are we even looking at here in chapter 12, and that's what is being presented for us. And I think here now, as we look at this war in heaven, so much great stuff. Like, Well, we know that the kingdom of our God and of his Christ was actually established in the that preexistence. So that's why we first start off with the war in heaven. So there was a war in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, Michael representing humanity. Mm. And that instantly a third of the angels with the flip of this dragon's tail were cast to earth. And so many people in that pre-mortal existence had a hard time saying, you know what, I want to use my agency to follow the Savior. And yet we see that in verse 11... The important part of that war in heaven is that those that chose the second estate conquered Satan because of the blood of the lamb. And then this is what we see. Those that stay bound to Jesus Christ throughout this will see many challenges from Satan. But the second Christ is there. There is no longer that dissonance and that um, disconcerting experience because we know that whenever Christ shows up, Satan is cast out. And so really this is between the church and the people of the church of God and Satan. But if those people choose the Savior, they stay safe throughout our reading today. Correct. And 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 I really love, I like how I said correct as if that's going to be job. wrong. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't need to validate Thank you that. For but yes. That. Okay. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about 11, when it's talking about they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. And I love that reference that even before we came to this earth, before the atonement was wrought in its physicality, that we anchored ourselves to it. We anchored ourselves to that hope and to the Savior and what he was able to do for us. And that feels like a key. That feels like a really important key that has kept us safe since before we even came to the earth. Right. 
Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the other thing that I felt like was worth mentioning is it speaks about um, when we speak of this war in heaven and that um, in verse 7, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought in his angels and they prevailed not. And I think, okay, well, what does a war in heaven look like? Is it, you know, when I think of war here on earth, it's very physical. There is bloodshed and there's weapons and maybe it's hand-to-hand combat in different times of the earth's history but without bodies none of us had bodies before we came to the earth so what does war look like when we are in heaven and it really was a war of ideas and opinions I think it was a war of confusion where Satan was bringing a lot of doubt and confusion and error that looked like truth and that in large part, it's almost like now Satan has both layers here. Before we came to the earth, he fought with this war of words, this like confusion of opinions. And in our day, a lot of times we see the physicality of what Satan does because there's a lot of uh, contention in the world. But we still have that layer of confusion that is happening as well now now he's operating on both levels the war that he had previously and now that we all have bodies he has another dimension that he can bring to it right and so in the pre-existence we had the war of words and maybe he used confusion but it was those that are faithful that will conquer which was the beginning of revelation consistently um, repeated to us, and now we see it manifesting in that war in heaven, and now we will see it brought to the earth and see how that manifests physically. Because it, it says in verse 12, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has descended upon you. And I think about how we come to this earth, we receive bodies, and we, in that first estate, in our spirits, have already shown our faith to the Savior. Now we get to show that in our physicality and bringing that all together here. So actually we get to see that unfold, what that looks like. So we come down to earth and the dragon fights against the woman on the earth. And we see that the woman actually goes into the wilderness in a state of apostasy. So if we're thinking maybe around the time of John, when this revelation was given, that the church was established through Christ and that we have an apostasy. And so then we see what happens during this apostasy. So the dragon who stands upon the sand of the seashore, which I really thought visually the sea in Revelation represents that chaos. Up out of chaos comes Satan. And he stands on the sand of the seashore. And these beasts that he brings forward they stand in this in this um, shore and in the sand and come from the sea and so all of this is chaos and a loose foundation which we know sand is not a real foundation to stand on and Satan brings forth two beasts the first beast is a beast with power and he has many crowns and so it's very easy to see how this one represents kind of the political kingdoms of the earth that through the political kingdoms of the earth satan can do lots to bring down the um, church of god yes and i think it's really interesting so now we're in verse in chapter in chapter, chapter 13. 13. And chapter 13 is really talking a lot about Satan's work on earth. And then just so that we can have something to look forward to, chapter 14, we're going to talk about the Savior. So I just like knowing that that's coming after we talk about right. Satan here for a little bit. But I think it's worth noting, you know, one of the things that I wrote, you know, we talk about the beast and that imagery. When I think of a beast, like that it's a, and one of the 
correlations that I had was like anything, any organization or political power or government, like anything that's beast-like, just wreaking destruction. And I think that it's worth recognizing that um, these these powers or these people that behave in a beast-like way upon God's people or just humanity in general, that they are getting their power from the dragon, that that is where they get power. And that on this earth, it it seems like, and, and you know, we see this specifically in the upcoming verses, that Satan has been given that it that there has been a space created here on earth that Satan has an ability to give power to those who would like to join in his fight to bring down God's people, the people that are trying to follow. It's really interesting while you're talking because I keep thinking of the Doctrine and Covenants and how it talks about power of the priesthood and the opposite of, of, of what that is supposed to look like. We are told in the Doctrine and Covenants that people that get a little power and they're imposing it and they're bullying and they're beasts and they're, they're not doing it through coercion and love, that that is something that's very tempting for people. So it's very easy to see this how in... Chapter 13, so how it's not the power of the priesthood, how it's not the power of God on earth. So chapter 13, verse 4 says, they worshiped the dragon, who is Satan, because he gave authority to the beast, this beast of political power. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war against him? Verse 5, he has given a mouth, this beast, to speak important things and blasphemy. And he opens his mouth to speak blasphemies against God. And so Satan puts these people in power in the earth. They bind people. People give their agency over to these political, um, this political power. And, and, and honestly, if you're reading in John's time, the, the emperor of Rome uh, you worshipped the emperor at this time. So it's very easy to see how instead of worshipping God, you can focus on who is like the beast and who this power is so great. I'm going to tie myself to that. I am right. going to bind myself to that. And he loves it because the thing he's most mad about is that we have chosen the Savior and the Savior gave us these bodies to, to grow closer and be more like him. And so the interesting thing is there's not just one beast, there's two beasts. So he's got one beast that just obviously is what you want to tie yourself to. And then there's the second beast that's an antichrist. It gives you that false sense of security and it says, yes, you're doing a good job by by following this beast, the first beast is this intimidating beast like you just described, right? But the second beast is, verse 11, two horns and, and looked like a lamb, which we know is mimicking um, the Savior. But he spoke like a dragon, and he had all the authority on behalf of Satan to, to give these people a false sense of security, make them feel like they're doing a good thing by doing this. And we have here again what I think is a theme that's very interesting because... This is an epic battle between good and evil. I think people in our lives, we recognize through the spirit of Christ that in the end, Christ wins. Like it's something that's an underlining feeling of the children of God. You know, we see it in our pop culture all the time. You go to a movie and you've got good versus evil and good wins. You know, you got it in Lord of the Rings. You got it in Star Wars. You got it um, Voldemort and, and Harry Potter. But we always know who's going to win, right? We know that Harry Potter is going to beat Voldemort. It's very obvious. The difference that Satan uses is subtlety. If we were sitting in this film, 
Good and evil would not be easy to discern unless you have eyes to see and ears to hear, which you get by by going towards being bound to the Savior and his power because Christ mimics him all the time throughout this. You can see that. Satan mimics. Or yeah. Satan mimics. Thank yeah. you. Good, yeah. good like, clarity there. That is an important there. distinction. Um, yeah, so everything about what you see in this is him trying so hard to look like the Savior and not. For the second beast. And I think yeah. it's worth noting that, you know, Satan doesn't just have one game plan. He doesn't just have one one idea of how he's going to bring God's people down, one size fits all. And if you are impervious to that plan, then you are good to go and safe. I think one of the things that this is showing us with these two different beasts, because there are people and probably most of the people that we come in contact with on an everyday basis are not seeking out that you know the powerful first beast to gain dominion and power over their fellow men like that is just not the people that i interact with on a regular basis that is not um the people that i see in actual real life all the time but there are those people on the earth that are interested in having that kind of power and control over other people and so satan's willing to give them a path as well but then he has this other path that is really going back. I feel like the subtlety of it is because its underpinnings are going back to that war in heaven where it's he's bringing confusion and making it very difficult for people to clearly see what path is bringing them back to the Savior. If, and it's one thing that I really love about this literature. Like, if, if, if I think about why did John's revelation here have to be symbolic and kind of difficult to... Um, excess. I think a lot of people find it really inaccessible because of the very symbolic imagery and the way that he goes about it. But I love, I think that it becomes really apparent that it's like super efficient because by giving us these symbols, whether it's the people of in John's time that he sent to these churches, this revelation, or us today, being able to look at this in, in any time of the history when people were given access to this revelation, they can see the workings of God and of Satan in the earth and be able to like kind of see through the confusion and be able to more clearly choose from a place of true choice and not just a confused default. Absolutely. And I think it's the ability to discern that you get through the spirit that allows you to see through all of this. And if you start by reading the beginning of chapter 13, it's all about Satan and his chaos. And you will find that there are many different heads on his beasts. And and there's so many different heads that you feel that confusion, right? Because previously we've talked about that um, those of the 144,000 would have the name of God on their head. And by being labeled by God, there is unity there. There is focus. You know where the power comes from. And, and reading chapter 13, which is all about Satan, everything about it is division, mm-hmm. isolation, confusion. And, you know, that'll be illustrated more. But, but at the end of um, 13... We transition into 14 and the very first four t- verse of 
chapter 14 is the contrast between all this confusion and beastliness. Which honestly feels like a relief. Like, after reading all this, it was really interesting to me mm-hmm. to read chapter mm-hmm. 13. I was like, oh, there's this is really interesting to be able to recognize and I could see things. But there's it did bring us, like, a, some sort of tension. Like, there's just, like, ugh. So, it's kind of overwhelming. Yeah. And then I got to chapter 14, verse 1, and I was like, oh, there Right, it the is. contrast mm-hmm. is so so clear that the very first... Sentences, I looked and behold the lamb, which we've talked about the importance of the meekness before, but the contrast is so dramatic here. And he's standing on the mount with 144,000 unified people. Again, the contrast between the disorder and the confusion and the chaos and the sense of isolation and separateness is contrasted with this beautiful sense of unity that not only do they have their names of, of their father on their foreheads following a beautiful meek lamb but you hear the sound in chat in verse two of harpists playing their harps and they were singing a new song before the throne and we've talked about music before and i think that the concept of of music and how it connects people on a level that brings order and unity is very um evident when you start thinking about it so we talked about how in the heavens and in the beginning of Revelation, they're sitting around singing songs, but there's this sense of music communicates something on a pure level. Mm-hmm. Throughout the world, people speak all different languages. So what is the language of heaven? And if you were sitting at a concert next to somebody that spoke a different language than you, but you were listening to a beautiful piece of music, you could look each other in the eye and know that you're feeling the same feeling. And I think the concept of using music to communicate how these people are unified and how there's a group of people with the father written on their foreheads following the lamb is a beautiful contrast in chapter 14 to what we just read in in chapter 13. And then directly after we see these, we see three angels that bring us three messages. Um, They announce basically the justice and the judgment of God is now coming. And so these three angels share that message. Then in chapter 15, we have the seven final plagues. And so we get these interludes. And with these interludes, we also get um, more examples. And part of me thinks, okay, how is John feeling while he's receiving this revelation? There may be the sense of, okay, I get this angel, but I need a little more explaining about this concept and maybe there's another example that the angel gives him but we get the seven plagues and these are the seven seven final plagues so we've already seen seven plagues before and so for me when I'm seeing this almost sense of redundancy or um, just a way that the the vision is communicating a message from God I'm thinking okay what do these plagues mean and we already pointed out that the seven plagues were like the seven plagues of of the Exodus. And we know that the Exodus was a way in which the children of God were captured and they were freed through these plagues that, that the righteous were redeemed by God and brought out of Pharaoh's control, which actually mimics again, what's that is ha- so interesting. Be- the church because and what it, it's doing. Cause it feels like there's like a, like when I pictured that, as you were talking about the people in Moses time, I was really picturing like almost a shaking loose, like, like these people were 
you know, in bondage. They were in slavery in Egypt and that these plagues were able to shake loose that bond that connected them to their Egyptian slaveholders and release them from that so that they were free to go and return to a worship of God and to like learn that. And we see people literally bound by a political power, which is kind of the points that we were just going through, right? I mean, I think there's so many ways on this earth that we become bound up in things of all varieties and that in many ways these plagues and some of these natural disasters that we're seeing that it's a way to shake up things that feel very um like you're stuck in this certain pathway but it seems like it's actually an opportunity to be able to be released from those bonds and once again have true freedom of choice to decide what you want to do because we saw in our reading last week and I think that you know we're getting to the wrapping up scenes but we still see that mercy of the hand of the lamb reaching out to us to say during even during these plagues even during all of this commotion if you once you're released from these things that are holding you bound if you want to be clothed in the blood of the lamb that is still available to you and i think that is like so shows so much the goodness of god absolutely and i think that's exactly what what he's explaining in chapter 12 that these plagues are freeing the righteous and that there's this cleansing so that those that want to bind themselves to God have that opportunity that throughout these plagues, if you are bound to God, you will be safe. You will still be able to feel that peace. And and that's what they're saying. They're coming out of this, and, and we get to chapter 17, okay. which... So I was just going to kind of summarize, because in 14, we've got talking about the Savior. And then at the end, it does talk about the harvest, how people will begin to be sorted, those who are following the Savior and those who are not. And I really do think that part of that, as we were talking about that, that just feels, it just resonates with me that a lot of these disasters are making the harvest possible, really, to be able to sort and separate so that people can choose freely again. And then chapter 15, I just wrote celestial worship. I feel like this is just a really beautiful little interlude. And then we have 16, which is the seven plagues. And now we're heading into 17. And one of the things I wrote, I mean, we're talking about the fall of Babylon here. And in chapter 17, fall of Babylon. Chapter 18, instructions that were given to abandon Babylon, essentially. But I think one of the beautiful things that we're reading here is no matter how powerful and great, no matter how entrenched it may seem, no matter how bound up we may see see others that we love or even ourselves bound in some of these things, that Satan's dominions are temporary. You know, John is giving us this like really cool, like I think of it as like a movie trailer, like you get to see like all the highlights. You may not see every detail, but you see all the key highlights. I mean, how many times have I seen a movie trailer and I'm like, wow, I basically just saw the whole movie. So if we tack on the ending, which oftentimes they don't do in a trailer, (laughs) but John does give us the ending for what happened, that we see this overall picture of what's happening and what he's communicating by showing us these key scenes is that yes, Satan is going to have great power on the earth, but it's only temporary. Yes, absolutely. And um, let's go on to chapter 17 because we, um, so, so there's a lot there to, you just set it up really great. So Babylon is Satan's 
uh, Zion. If Christ's church is on the earth and it will establish Zion, Babylon is Satan's Zion. And, and the angels rejoice when Babylon is destroyed. And here's, here's the thing about this revelation, right? We know that there's a literal second coming. We know that we're building up to the millennium. There is a lot here that you can take time to read. I often found with all the points that Michelle just made that I could see this as literal experiences throughout the history of the world and, and of what will be happening in the last days. But when I did get bogged down in something, I always said, and how does this apply to me? Because the truth is this church is for us so that each one of us has the opportunity to choose to follow the Savior. And so when we talk about Babylon and, and the, the church of the world, many of us have experienced many of its temptations. And so as we read chapter 17, as we go through it, let's look at it as that true Babylon, which actually was a city that was destroyed thousands of years ago but has become the symbol of Satan's um, Zion. But the harlot is Satan's church. Just like the woman, the clothed of the sun, was the church of Christ, this harlot is Satan's church and the counterpart to her. It's interesting to read about her. So chapter 17, verse 1, the angel shows him, John, the great prostitute who sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth acted immorally, and those who live on the earth have become drunk with the wine of her sexual impropriety. Verse 5. Upon her forehead was written a name that was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth, has all kinds of blasphemies written upon her head. And so she loves... Um, taking Christ's goodness and the truth of Christ and confusing that with other things. In fact, as you read more about her, she is clothed with a beautiful dress and jewels. In fact, jewels that were found on the priest's, um, on the priest's garb when he would be at the temple. This is what she decorates herself with. It's almost like everything she can get her hands on in this world that can mimic what true goodness and true love are like, but with the no real, real substance. truth, no substance. There's it's no just... substance to it. And I think it's interesting, like one of the patterns that I keep seeing emerge as we're talking about this is that Satan, for the vast majority of us, he is really like mimicking and imitating what the what God has set up. And I think it's like... It's like he's got this like little piece of truth. Sometimes the hardest um, error to separate ourselves from is an error that has a part of truth in it because there's right. a part of us that can't deny that part of that sounds true. Part mm -hmm. of that feels true to us. And so it's hard to throw the whole thing out when part of it feels true to us. And our spirits, like we may have a veil of forgetfulness, but when a true principle is introduced to us, I believe for many of us, that resonates. And so it's a very sneaky thing that he does. And even how he imitates Zion, which which is this ultimate place of security for us in verse 13. That's where I'm going to. He says, um, these, these people that are following Satan, they have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And I think 
wow, that one mind, that sounds an awful lot like how we talk about Zion all the time. One heart, one mind. The difference is that there's no substance here. Satan is creating this whole elaborate thing simply to deceive and confuse. And it's really kind of um, underhanded and mean that he uses these little pieces of beautiful truth to totally flip it on its head and, and bring confusion. And that's why we go back to the concept that we've actually brought up before about what an antichrist looks like. It's not that they're this beast with all these heads and this scariness. They look like the lamb, like the, the, the lamb or like a beautiful woman. The difference is that you can't take away Christ from the goodness. Christ, faith in Christ, the first principle of the church of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ, faith, hope in Christ, charity, the pure love of Christ, it's Christ. It's being bound to Christ. Without that, you can look worldly and you can look kind and you can look lovely. It is Christ that keeps you in the power that contrasts this. In fact, you read, these kings have a single purpose. They give the power and authority to the beast. They make war with the lamb, but... The lamb will conquer them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. But by contrast, the next verse, Babylon and his prostitute, the harlot, she sits with peoples, crowds, nations, and languages. And the ten horns and the beast that you saw, they will hate the prostitute and make her desolate and naked, and they will consume her flesh and burn her with fire. And I just think, again, we have these contrasts. We'll see the lamb and the people that are faithful have the sense of unity. But then in contrast, right after he points that out, those that follow the prostitute will actually consume her flesh and burn her with fire. So there is no sense of unity. There's no, there's, again, Christ is unifying, but Satan is always leaving people feeling alone and, and, and fighting against each other. And we see with the fall of Babylon 18, this laid out very, very well with words that we'll look at next. Yes. Cause I feel like Satan pulls the rug out from under people. He mm -hmm. sets it up and people feel like they have unity in following a deception, but he's not content to let people feel happy and safe in that bubble for long before he I think it's a perverse pleasure out of pulling that rug out from under people and leaving them upended. It reminds me of, I went, it, you know, this in stores or in model homes, sometimes they'll have a, a bed that's made up so beautifully and it looks like this lovely place to, right. to go and like rest or whatever. And you know, if you go to sit on the bed, sometimes it's literally made out of like boxes box, or yeah. yeah, it's not actually a bed. Mm -hmm. And so although it looks enticing and appealing, it actually provides no comfort and doesn't actually have the function with which it purports to have. Well, and that's, a, that is what the first, one of the beasts was. It's that false sense of security that comes from materialism and money and the pride of the world. And that is what the fall of Babylon is telling you is that these people they can come out of Babylon. So in chapter 18, we have an angel that says, that tells you about the fall of Babylon. He's telling John, and I loved the description of this angel. It says in verse one that he had, this angel had so much authority that the earth was lightened by his glory. Hmm. This is an That's angel beautiful. that came and his glory was so bright that 
he was a light to the earth. So I, I think this, I'm wondering who this angel is, but it, the explanation of how the destruction of Babylon and her harlot affects people, it says in verse nine, the king of the earths who were immoral with her and lived in luxury with her weep and wail when they see that she was consumed because there goes their materialism, there goes their, their riches. And this is what happens with the merchants of the earth in verse 11. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn because they can no longer buy any of their goods. These goods of gold and silver and precious stones, and it goes on and on and on, these goods. And it says cinnamon, spice, frankincense, and at the end it says cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, slaves and human lives and then, are what they sold. Yes, and then in the King James Version it says the souls of men, which I think, oh... I mean, that's the core of what we're talking about. So I'm grateful if, that Babylon fell. So, yes, you know. it's it's really interesting because a lot of chapter 18, I think the, I think it, it can be interpreted both literally and symbolically for sure as we're talking about the riches and how people are, you know, being seduced because of the riches of the world. They're willing to trade in their allegiance to God for these luxuries for these riches and the word that comes to my mind is indulgence and that's why I think it can be a little symbolic because not all of us struggle with you know wanting to sacrifice everything just so I can have the coolest materialistic thing but I think on some level we are all have a weakness for being indulgent to ourselves on some level and I think that this is some really good instruction that those indulgences, again, do not have the substance that we want for, that it will not last. Right, and it's the lasting peace from the Savior that we see conquers all. It's the faith in Christ that conquers all throughout this. And then, so immediately after Babylon falls, we go to chapter 19, that is the celebration in heaven that the 24 elders in verse 4 of not chapter 19 and the four living creatures came down and worshiped God who was seated upon the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And the so heaven descends again and is connected with earth when when Babylon falls and they sing praises and they shout and they shout because in verse 7 the wedding of the lamb has arrived and his bride has made herself ready and so now the church of God is ready for the reception of Christ coming and being the king of kings on the earth. And I will say when I got to this section, I was surprised at how invested I got as I was reading through these verses. I know. It just gets so good. And, you want to highlight everything. And, this, really. and as I read that verse in verse 7, and I started reading about the marriage supper, and then we'll see later on in this chapter, you know, the Savior comes and we get to see him come in his glory. And then twenty. Chapter 20, talking about the millennium, and 21 and 22, talking about celestial life. I just felt this anticipation. Like, I felt excited. Like, yes, I, I want to be there. I Even talking I, right now, it's like, I feel like we, we made the announcement of what we're going to talk about. And I noticed maybe when I first went to churchofjesuschrist.org and I looked at maybe some older... Um, lesson manuals, they kind of skip over chapters 13 through 18 and go straight from to, okay, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And just talking about all that chaos and that struggle, you can feel it kind of, there's that sense of binding that you feel in chaos. And so now that we're in chapter 19, I already feel just better like talking about it because 
were invited to this feast of the Lamb, and as members of the church were invited. And I'll tell you, one of my favorite scriptures of all the reading is chapter 19, verse 10, which is an odd thing to say, because what happened was this, this angel, who obviously has a lot of power and authority because he lit up the earth when he, he said these things, John kind of recognized it, and he fell to worship this angel, and the angel said, do not do this. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And this is why I think that the marriage of Christ to his bride is such a beautiful concept for each of us, that the church of God teaches us and gives us the resources we need so that we can have a testimony, so that we can have a testimony and testify of Christ, because it's through the testimony of Jesus Christ that we have the spirit of prophecy. And as, as members of the church, when you have the spirit of prophecy, you can receive revelation for yourself and for your family so that you can become a member of the kingdom of God in Zion in the last days. And that promise is beautiful to me. I I absolutely love that. And another thing that stood out to me as I was reading that verse is, you know, we see once again a contrast between those who are devoted to the lamb and those who are following after the power of the beast. And we see, you know, here is this angel who came, as we said, with all of this power and it takes a tremendous amount of humility to have a great amount of power and not seek any recognition for it and to redirect all of that to the Savior. And I think that that is maybe a really beautiful fruit that we can see of the people of God, that although they may have power and ability to work in God's name and to work miracles and to bring light and to bring clarity about really important things they don't seek any of that recognition or glory for themselves they are always in recognition that the savior is where it comes from and it goes right back to the basic first principle of the church which you're taught as a little child in primary faith in the lord jesus christ is where all that power comes from and speaking of that's when he returns is right after this verse and the interesting thing is he's been a lamb up to this point and now in verse 11, we see that Christ that comes, which actually was how he was described at the beginning of vision, the vision, Revelation chapter yes. one, we see the heavens open and a white horse and the one seated upon it, it's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war and his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and has the name written that no one knows except him. And he wears a robe that has been dipped in blood and he is called the word of God. And that robe with its power is the sacrifice that he's made for everyone. A, a very visual representation and of the, everything he's done for us. And I have to feel like as an art major, you like love the visuals in this section. Well, cause that robe is his power. It's his sacrifice. That's his power. That's what our power. We're clothed with the sun. It is the light that is reflected from the source, but his source comes from the sacrifice. And that's that's where our power comes from, is sacrificing and living like the Savior and following his example. And so on his robe is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And who is he King of Kings over? And he is the King of Kings because he's made us kings. He is the Lord of Lords because he's made us lords. No, oh, I love that. And, you know, I have to acknowledge that 
absolute tenacity of Satan, because even in this moment when <laughs> right. when the Savior comes in his full glory, he's wearing all the you know visual symbols of all that he has done to rescue every one of us. It's done. This is no longer this theoretical thing that he's going to do someday. He is there. He has done it. He is he has rescued all of these that are following along with him. And then we see, we're in chapter 19, verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And I just think, Satan, you don't give up. Like, you are going to fight to the bitter, bitter end, even when it's so obvious that the Savior is here in his glory. Right, but in this epic vision, it is the most anticlimactic thing. It's like, and the beast was captured. And that's the defeat of the beast. You know why? Because now, even though we knew that Babylon fell and we knew everything, when Satan Satan was there, but Christ has just cast him out. There's just no fight when Christ is there. It's Ooh, like, I love oh, that. Mm-hmm. okay, and so now he's defeated. Like, that's it. There right. was no battle because Christ is there. And so it's like, yes, he's still trying, and then he was bound, the end. And so that is the opening of the millennium. And so that takes us to chapter 20 where Christ will reign for a thousand years and that Satan is bound. And I think it's worth actually reading the words to just so that we can like recognize how truly concise it is because... John is not <laughs> cheap is. with his words. He's willing to give right. a lot of words to describe things. And an angel might go things. ahead and explain a whole chapter right. on it, right? right. But it's literally but it's, Satan is bound. But it's literally cha- chapter 19, verse 20, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. And these were both cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. The end. Period. The end. Well. And then, and, well, not the end, the end, but, you know, we see that There just that, wasn't a struggle. It was right. like. It was so clear. In the name of Christ. I mean, I don't think it done. was a struggle for Christ is what we're saying. <laughs> right. It was not a struggle for the Savior to say, and, 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 and your time of dominion is done. And I am going to, we go chapter 20. We're talking about the start of the millennium here. Because it was never between Christ and Satan. It was between the church of God and Satan. It's never been anything else. That's really interesting. Um, because there is no battle when it comes to the Savior. The Savior has no desire to the battle The battle us. is, did you bind yourself to Christ? So the battle is within each one of us, really. Right, yes. That, so. is, that is where the battle is, because the Savior, I don't think he has any interest in battling with us. He is there to help us, to reach out to us. We already know he he's perfected and complete yes. in all his power and authorities. So. Yes. So then we have chapter 20, where we speak about the millennium. Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. He will not have the ability to deceive the nations. Then, then and I want to point the, out that priesthood is what binds him. Okay, and then we have the last battle, and I'm interested in your in your words about the book of life. I thought I, I which verse? So now um, let's go to twenty verse twelve, and it tells us about the book of well, life. You and your ahead. thoughts I was about talking that. Oh, about the last battle. Oh, sorry. Where we may hear of Gog and Magog. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And so that's okay. the last battle, right. and then and we then, get to the final okay, judgment. Yes. So this is the final judgment, and I think that this is a There's verse a lot that we have heard this, quite though. a bit. And so we're in chapter twenty, verse twelve. And I saw the dead, small and great, 
stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And I think, you know, at the end we see it is the Savior who stands here in this moment. And what a beautiful, comforting thought that is because he is the one who has felt and experienced everything that we have been through because he created the great atonement on our behalf. So literally on my behalf, when I go and stand before him and the things which are in this book of life and in the books that record everything that I have chosen, I'm being accountable to one who has felt and experienced all of the context for my choices. And, and I love that. And I think the book of life is interesting. I don't know that there's much more to say about it more than it's supposed to record our actions and what we did with our experience on earth. But when you say it that way and we're there and Christ is our, um, he is our advocate. I don't think it has anything to do with, well, go ahead and let Laura in because she worked really hard. It has everything to do with let Laura in because she let me in. Mm, I love that. It's all about the Savior. It doesn't matter. It was the question of whether you decided early in life or you decided late in life. If you let him in, he is your advocate and it is through his name that you receive your glory and power and, and thrones. And we see again and again that visually represented that the people that are standing with the Savior and that are enjoying that, that glory with him are those who are clothed in white that is made white through the blood of the Lamb. Absolutely. And so really in that moment what it comes down to is have we um, made ourselves clean through the Savior regardless of what may have gotten us dirty up to that point are we clean through the Savior? And that is something that every one of us can have. That is not limited to, I'm sorry, you've reached your quota. You've taken up too many chapters in this book with terrible things, and so it's over now for you. No, the Savior's atoning sacrifice covers all manner of mistakes, errors, you know, bad choices, because... Once again, I think a big part of it is that he knows and loves us and that context does matter. And at the end of the day, when we reach for him, we are made perfect because he is perfect. He can fill in any gap that has been created within us. So isn't that why this is, book of Revelation is so beautiful? Because now it brings us to the last two chapters where we have Zion coming to the earth, where we have heaven on earth, that through the atonement, heaven and earth are at one. And, and it's so beautiful to me because after all this epic experience and the and the sometimes the chaos that we actually feel in our life that all of this was Christ sanctifying us so that we could dwell with God because God can't be in the presence of that right and so it is the sanctification that he loved us enough to sanctify us so that we could dwell in this paradisiacal glory and so that's what brings us to chapter 21, that there is an actual new heaven and new earth that the sea has departed. There is no more chaos. And there is the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven. And we see in verse 3, um, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. God is dwelling 
on earth and he will live among them. This will be his people and God himself will be with them. And he, in verse four, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will no longer exist. No mourning, crying or pain for the former things have ceased. And that's what this was all about. Christ sanctifying us so that we can live that way for forever and ever. Amen. Yes, I absolutely loved that. I just can feel the rest that comes in that moment when we reach that point after all of this struggle that we have to get there, that when we get there, it truly is a beautiful rest. And I felt a relief when I read in, so we're chapter 21, verses six and seven. Mm-hmm. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning of the end. And I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God. And I thought, I am so, I just felt such a feeling of contentment and relief when I read that it is done. And and I read that it is done. And at the end, and I will be his God and he will be my child. We've always known we're children of God, but it is done now. And we are sanctified and we get to be in the presence of God. And we feel that fullness and that Mm -hmm. completion. And we, are, we have conquered through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we have the new Jerusalem where the bride and the wife of the lamb come. And, it, and, and now we have this amazing Zion that everyone can live with in, right? When you literally read about it, it's, it's beautiful because it's massive, right? Part of it, okay, we know the, the streets are paved with gold and we know that it's got all these jewels and everything, but it's the massiveness that I thought was amazing that everyone can participate in this. There is no, not any room, right? There's not this 144,000 that get in and nobody else does because this place literally, if you literally took the measurements would be like half the continent of yeah, North America or right? something. It's so giant. I just think it's beautiful that, that, and there is no temple in the city in verse 22, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Yes. And everyone is invited. There is no closure. There's no limit. It's that we constantly feel that to go no more out of the temple because the temple is us and the people and God. And isn't that just like the ultimate beautiful hope? Not only is the Savior coming in his glory, but he is here and has created this space that he obviously knows that it's not, again, just a few of us that will be there. He has created space for all who desire to be there. And in verse 23 of chapter 21, the glory of God did lighten it, meaning the city, and the lamb is the light thereof. Yes, absolutely. I loved it. And then verse 25, there shall be no more night there. And that it has so much beautiful symbolism to me. It so does, I just because love it. we started our discussion today talking about the church of God and that, that really we're all the church. Each of us individually makes up that church and that we can be clothed in light, that we can have the moon at our feet and the stars as our crown, and that we are clothed with the light of God. And that in verse 22, we see all this manifest. We live in a place now with crystal clear water. There's no more filthy waters, which we've seen in Revelations before. Crystal clear water that is life-giving water. And this tree of life, which we've also seen before, constantly gives us the fruit. Not just the fruit, but just the fruit that we need at that month of the 12 
seasons. And that the throne of the Lamb, in verse 3, will be in the city and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and they will no longer need, need a lamp. And it's the words of the people that are faithful and true. And then the, in verse 7, blessed are those who obey the words of the prophecy of this book, which is the beginning again, what oh, yes. we read in it- First Revelations. It's so interesting to me because the Book of Mormon kind of starts that way too. The very first chapter says, I will show you how much the Lord loves you. And this revelation started that way. Blessed are those that really try to obey what you're about to find out. And so now in this closing, we're told why. It says, actually, it goes right back to that verse that I told you I love so much. That is the closing. John saw this angel, and I guess it was so important that he wrote it twice. So the closing of this vision was the angel showed him this, th- these things and he wanted to worship him and he said, do not do this. I am your fellow servant with your brothers, the prophets, and with those who obey the word of this book, worship God. And as you worship God, you access God's power for you receive the testimony of Jesus Christ and you can prophesy. And verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they are permitted to go to the tree of life and enter the gates of the city like you just pointed out, the white robes. And in conclusion, and the spirit of the bride will say, and the bride is the church. So the spirit of the church says, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Just like these angels that have constantly said throughout the revelation, come and see. We as members of the church, we can come and see. And then once we do, we share it with other people. And together we strengthen each other and we become the body of Christ. And we are able to establish Zion and and help each other dwell with God and become more like God. And I love bringing that all together then as we're able to see and recognize that this, that John has shared is truly how things will unfold. Um, in verse 20, talking of, um, he said, he, he which testify of these things, surely I come quickly, which can also just means suddenly or, you know, maybe in much the same way he dealt with Satan earlier, right? Just effectively, efficiently, I come and amen. And then he says, even so come Lord Jesus. And I love that phrase come. And I love that phrase because yes, we may be talking about the second coming, but everything you just stated in our personal lives, he can come quickly when we're really willing to accept him and transform Mm. our bodies to tabernacles of light and love and truth forever and ever. Amen. And isn't that truly what it's all about? We don't have to wait for the second coming to invite the Savior to come and to develop that intimate relationship with him that we can invite him. Even so, come. Come to me, make me whole, clothe me in white, and I am yours to do your work. This is really hard to end because you're like, can we just say this and talk about it forever and ever? Amen. But I loved the book of Revelation, Michelle, and thank you for sharing it with me. Thank you, Laura.